Okay, this is the final exam podcast. I'm going to try to go over all of the items that are actually on the final exam, which covers all of the chapters that we went through this semester, as well as the material. Um, you'll want to look more specifically at the review sheet, which is on Blackboard under review sheets, which kind of makes sense. But I'm going to go through each of the topics and try and explain what some of them are, as well as tell you what you need to know about them, which will give you a little time to look those up and study them. But the first thing is the correlation coefficient. This is way back from chapter one, basically telling you how strong the relationship is between two things or two factors in an experiment. Make sure you understand the definition of that. The second thing are basically what the features of an experiment are, a true experiment. You want to always have random selection, um, make sure that you have control of everything, and that factors that you weren't trying to measure don't mess up your experiment. So make sure you know how those work with the different groups. Like, for example, number three, the independent and dependent variable, what those are. The independent variable is going to be your grouping variable or your cause variable. The dependent variable is kind of more the effect variable. A lot of times it's a measurement such as a test score, okay? So if I wanted to basically compare an online course to an in-person lecture course and then have one large test at the end, the independent variable would be which group you were in, the online test, or the online group versus the in-person group, and the dependent factor would be your score on the final exam. Okay, so that's cause and effect. Um, number four, um, you kind of want to know about the Institutional Review Board or the IRB. They're going to be the people that approve your experiment, and that's going to kind of be right before everything else. They're going to make sure it's ethical and that you're not doing things that are inappropriate um, that are going to get your institution in trouble. Okay, number five, um, you want to know about functionalism. Okay, functionalism's way back in chapter one. And it's basically about how people adapt to their environment. It's a historical approach in psychology. Make sure you kind of understand the definition of that and are able to recognize it. Okay. Number six is pseudo-psychology. So basically, um, some of the false things about psychology, you want to kind of be able to recognize those and parse those out. Um, number seven, you want to know the definition of psychology, which is basically just going to be looking at mental processes and behavior and the study of those. Okay, be sure to look that definition up. Um, number eight is kind of moving on to chapter two. It's glia cells. Okay, you want to know what those do. And I know they were a while ago, but glial cells do a lot of things. The first thing they do is they form myelin or the myelin sheath that goes on the axon of a neuron. Okay. And this is where it sends the message. Okay. Electrically. And it basically insulates that neuron. All right. It performs or basically provides a fatty layer around it to basically make it work faster. Okay. The other things glial cells do is they're responsible for cleanup in the brain, basically. They clean out dead cells, etc. Um, and they also provide the blood-brain barrier, okay, the different types of glial cells. 
Number nine, myelin. I've already kind of talked about that, what it is. It's that white fatty substance that speeds up neural transmission, okay? Number 10, the refractory period is basically that space between different action potentials where once it fires, there needs to be kind of a rehab period where it can kind of refill everything and get stocked back up on neurotransmitters. So a small amount of time where it can't fire. So that's called the absolute refractory period. So make sure you understand that. The next one is inhibition. So neurons are either sent positive charges or negative charges via ions, okay? Those ions make it less likely to fire or more likely to fire. Inhibitory transmissions, which are negative, make it less likely to fire because it becomes more negative, okay? Because remember, it sets it negative 70 millivolts, and that's its resting potential. For it to fire, it actually has to move up about 5 millivolts, so kind of keep that in mind. So that's inhibition. Um, excitation is when it goes up, okay? And that's when you're going to get something called an action potential. The action potential is sending one message from one neuron to a second neuron, okay? And this is the same in intensity and the same in strength every single time, okay? Number 12, psychoactive drugs. Um, these are drugs that basically have an effect on the mind and therefore the body as well. And um, you know what most of these are as we covered them. Um, most of them work on neurotransmitters, right? So things like GABA or acetylcholine or serotonin or um, glutamate, any of those neurotransmitters. And they're going to act on that kind of at the receptor or at the synapse, okay? So basically that space between two neurons, they can do things like block reuptake, like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors do, which basically means there's more serotonin available in the synapse for it to bind to the next neuron, okay? That's one way that psychoactive drugs work, and most of them actually work in that way at the synapse to provide either more neurotransmitter or less neurotransmitter. Okay, now neurotransmitters basically have either an excitatory or an inhibitory effect, okay? Your main inhibitory neurotransmitter is going to be GABA, okay? Um, your main excitatory neurotransmitter is going to be glutamate, all right? Um, make sure you kind of understand what those are, okay? All of the others that we talk about, like epinephrine, norepinephrine, sorry, that's my cat, Serotonin and dopamine and acetylcholine are all excitatory, but GABA is, of course, inhibitory, okay? Um, moving on, you'll want to know the difference between sensory and motor neurons. Motor neurons move your body. Sensory neurons are what you kind of feel with, all right? I think you kind of know the difference in that. 15, the next one, you want to know about how many rods and how many cones are in the eye and kind of the differential for that, right? Um, there's a lot more rods than there are cones. Uh, rods, of course, or, are for regular vision. Cones are for color vision, which makes sense since it starts with C as well, okay? Moving on to number 16, adaptation to light. You'll want to understand dark adaptation as well as light adaptation and which one happens quicker and which one happens slower in humans. Okay, number 17, 
And number 18, you're moving on to visual theories. This is, of course, chapter three. Um, the trichromatic theory of color vision. Understand what the definition of that is. Also, for number 18, you want to understand what the opponent process theory is. Now, both of these are technically true, okay? You can have more than one theory that is true at the same time, okay? But you also want to kind of understand that they just basically work in different ways and what ways those are, okay? Number 19, you'll want to understand the difference between a visual and an auditory stimulus. What are they, okay? Number 20, um, you'll want to know the definition of pitch as in terms of hearing, okay? Um, number 21 is umami, which is the, I know I'm probably saying that wrong, is the taste, right? We have different taste buds, like salty, bitter, sour, meaty, right? What umami is, is basically that meaty or savory type taste. Um, number 22, basically you want to know how sleep affects the body, right? We need to get a certain amount of sleep. And basically, if we don't, there's some effects of that that are problematic. So know what those are. Okay. Um, number 23 is how much sleep most people actually get or need. Um, so make sure you know how much sleep adults need, but how much they actually average. Okay. Um, 24 circadian rhythms. These are the changes in the light dark cycle okay and they happen with hormones as well as in reaction to the sun coming up and going down okay and um they're quite predictable and there's a lot of body processes that change with those hormones throughout the day okay now 25 is melatonin um, it's something most people have heard of. It's something a lot of people take to help them sleep at night because it's a natural sort of hormone that usually increases in the early evening, which is why you start to get tired and start yawning when the sun goes down. Okay. And it's basically associated with sleep and, you know, of course the sun going down itself. Okay. Number 26 is back to drugs. Um, you need to know about alcohol and caffeine, Remember, we have things that are depressants, and we also have things that are excitants, I guess, um, or stimulants. Alcohol, of course, depresses your system and is more likely to increase GABA, okay? Caffeine is a stimulant, is basically going to increase things like epinephrine. I'm sorry, that's my cat again. Um, number 27, you want to know about Korsakoff's disease, okay? It's a, it's a memory disorder due to a certain vitamin deficiency, Okay, so be sure to look that up. Number 28 is MDMA, okay, which is a drug, of course. Um, it's a Schedule One drug that it's illegal to produce as well as possess in the United States. But there is something in clinical trials that they're using it for to help treat. So you want to know what that is and how it's working, okay? Number 29 has to do with Pavlov and what type of conditioning he used. And basically, he used forward conditioning, which is going to be placing the bell before the food. That basically means that the bell should predict the food. Okay, so that's forward conditioning. Okay, number 30, um, what did Watson do? He basically did fear conditioning in Little Albert. He did that with a white rat, but he was also able to do it with other animals as well. He was able to show stimulus generalization in him. 
Okay. Um, you want to know the definition of classical conditioning. That's number 31. And then you also want to know what for 32 stimulus discrimination is or what it leads to. Okay. Stimulus discrimination is when you respond to less stimuli over time. Whereas I was talking about stimulus generalization, which is responding to more stimuli. So little Albert responded originally to a rat and then he also responded to a dog and a fur coat and a Santa mask. That's generalization versus discrimination, okay? Know what aversion therapy is. Generally, it's used to treat alcoholism. Um, one of the drugs they use for that is called antabuse. You might be able to find it a little easier that way, okay? Um, not in the drug section, but in the learning chapter, Okay. Um, operant conditioning and classical conditioning know kind of how those two systems work. And I know we covered them quite significantly in class, so you should be good with that. Number 35, continuous reinforcement schedules. Um, I know a lot of people had trouble with reinforcement schedules, but basically you just kind of need to understand the continual reinforcement schedule is when you reinforce a behavior every single time it happens rather than every five times. I think I mentioned in class that I have a lot of trouble getting my cat to not scratch on certain chairs in my house. And it's not because I don't tell him not to do it. It's because I don't tell him not to do it at night and I don't do it when I'm not home. So he's not getting a consistent representation of that, okay? A continuous reinforcement schedule would be me doing that every single time he scratched that chair. Learning would probably happen much more quickly that way, okay? That's continuous reinforcement, okay? Number 36, implicit and explicit memory. Make sure you know what those are, which one's conscious, which one's unconscious. Number 37, echoic sensory memory. Um, remember there's iconic and echoic memory. Echoic memory is going to be for sound. Iconic is going to be visual, and those are both types of sensory memory. Okay. Number 38, um, know what the capacity of short-term memory is, like how many items someone can actually remember at once um, without any sort of rehearsal. Number 39, the primacy and the recency effect. Okay, If you're given a list of items and you can't write them down, which ones are you most likely to remember? Probably the ones at the beginning and the ones at the end. Know why that happens. Okay, Number 40, the working memory model versus the three-stage model. Remember, the three-stage model is kind of a step model. You have step one, step two, and step three, and they're very serial. Okay, so be sure to look at those. And then for the working memory model, you have multiple processes working all at once. You have your visual spatial sketch pad. You have um, your phonological loop. Those can both activate at the same time so it's more of a parallel processor be sure to look that up and understand it number 41 semantic memory be sure to know the definition of that 42 is episodic memory again a definition 43 understand the difference between nature and nurture right nature is going to be kind of what you get from your parents nurture is going to be what happens from the environment okay Number 44, prehension. 
know what that is or what reflex it's associated with. Um, number 45, know about Piaget, basically kind of what he was interested in studying, which was cognitive development in infants and children. He also kind of looked into adult development, but not real far. He kind of stopped pretty early in terms of his theory. Okay. Number 46, Piaget also talked about egocentrism, which isn't the same thing as being egocentric as an adult. This is basically the idea of not being able to see something from someone else's point of view. Okay. Little kids basically can only see the world from their point of view, not yours. Okay. Number 47, Harlow's monkeys. Um, we didn't talk about this a ton, but it basically has to do with attachment theory. Um, so kind of understand what that is. Number 48, parenting styles. What did we learn about parenting styles? Well, parenting styles differ dependent upon the children and how parents actually interact with them. So you may end up with more than one parenting style within a family if you have more than one child. Okay, that's very interactive. Um, number 48, uh, basically the male version of menopause, it's called andropause. Um, this does actually happen if you're curious. Um, it's basically, you know, the change in hormones that happens in men when they get older. It's not quite as abrupt or as easy to see in men as it is in women, but it does happen. Okay. And then number 50, the personal fable, kind of know what that is. Basically, that whole idea uh, when you're an adolescent or when you're like, say, 16, 17, or 18, and you feel like no one understands you and your problems are unique and special compared to everyone else's, and you're different, okay? As you get older, you realize that's not really the case, all right? But that's what a personal fable is, okay? And I'm going to stop there for a few minutes and come back and finish this. So that's the end of the first half. Okay, moving on to number 51. Um, this is basically talking about persuasion and whether it's easier to persuade people via a central or peripheral route. Be sure to look that up. Number 52 is about prejudice. So basically what we found is that um, children don't necessarily just learn prejudice from their parents. It depends on what type of attitudes the parents had when they were being prejudicial whether or not the children pick those up. So be sure to look at that research. Number 53 is on attraction. So basically, are we more likely to be attracted to people who are different than us or people who are like us? And generally, the more alike we are, the better that is, okay? Um, those relationships are more likely to last, okay? Number 54, the difference between compliance and obedience Compliance is basically just going along with a request, which is something simple, right? Like, hey, how about we go to the Cracker Barrel for dinner? Okay, that sounds good, okay? Um, versus obedience, which is more of like, a, I'm telling you to do something, therefore you do it. It's a demand of you, okay? Um, number 55 has to do with the bystander effect and in what situations we will help people and what situations we won't help people, Okay. Number 56 has to do with group work and groupthink. And basically, there's different types of groups. I think we've all been in the one where we're the only person doing work, and that's really hard. 
Um, I think it's why a lot of people don't like group work. Um, in terms of which were or which groups fall to groupthink, um, generally ones that kind of fall under like the militant management style or a things have to be done my way sort of style is more likely to fall into groupthink. Okay, number fifty-seven is uh, something kind of odd. It has to do with aggression, and it's basically talking about what people have basically said they've really actually thought about killing someone and it's actually a pretty high percentage um i think depending upon how it's asked depends on what kind of answer you get because i think everyone's kind of had a thought about killing someone they're mad at but not ever actually wanted to do it so know the percentages on that for men and women of course it is more men than women um but it's around 75 percent of male students say that they would have thought of that and that's actually apparently normal. Um, so make sure you know that. Um, also in terms of violent media, number 58, um, what they found is that people that watch violent things on television are more likely to have violent dreams. I think we dream basically about what we interact with during the day, so that's not shocking. Number 59 is about the Holmes and Ray social readjustment scale. And that was the scale where certain things, um, such as, say, planning a wedding or having a death in your family, those things add stress to you. And Holmes and Ray basically assigned a rating scale to that, giving certain values to each life event, some positive and some negative. And those add up to stressful things, okay? Those stressful things are more likely to you know, kind of predict how your health will be in the next 10 years. And stress definitely can attribute to things like heart problems or blood pressure problems that can actually make your life much shorter. Number 60 has to do with catastrophes and what happens with people who have experienced those. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of stress and um, when people have had a lot of loss, they also tend to be depressed and anxious. I don't think that's anything out of the norm, um, especially when there's sudden trauma. Okay. Um, number 61, make sure you know what the definition of stress is. Okay. From the stress psychology chapter and health psychology. Number 62, primary appraisal. So when we appraise a stressful event, there's the primary and the secondary appraisal. Primary appraisal is basically just checking to see what our initial interpretation is of a stressor. And then our secondary appraisal, appraisal is going to be figuring out what resources we need to deal with that event. Okay. Number 63, know what the term immunosuppression means. It's basically suppression of your immune system and when that tends to happen in relation to stress. Um, number 64, you need to know the difference between problem and emotion-focused coping. Okay, um, There's two types there, and depending upon what type of stressor you have, depends on the type of coping that can go with it. Number 65, defense mechanisms. This is one of the few things I would say Freud definitely got right. Um, a lot of times we tend to ignore our emotions or keep them unconscious, and that's like a defense mechanism. As I said, denial is a very real thing that people experience constantly um, for many reasons. Okay, number 66, 
is basically the effects of exercise. Exercise is good for you. I think we all know this. It's just getting the motivation to do it. And basically know that it helps with, you know, the emotional, physical, and effects of stress and things like that. Um, number 67 is guided imagery, which is basically a certain type of therapy where you imagine yourself somewhere nice and safe and relaxing like a beach. And that's one way to kind of reduce your stress level. Okay. Number 68, you have your type A and type B personalities. Know the difference between those, um, what a type A personality is, what a type B personality is, and what we predict from those, okay? Number 69 is uh, Siegelman's research on learned helplessness. Um, I'm not sure I talked about this much because it's kind of sad, but um, what Siegelman did was he found that you could teach animals to be helpless in a situation. And what he did was he had a group of dogs. The, the first group um, basically would be on a metal crate type situation and there would be a buzz and then a small little shock to their feet that was kind of uncomfortable. And what they could do was when they heard the buzzer, which would predict the shock, is they could jump to the other side and avoid the shock, okay? And then they could do the same thing and jump back. And so they would kind of volley back and forth between one area and another area to avoid a shock. In a second group, what they did was they had the buzzer to predict the shock, but then they didn't allow the dogs initially to go anywhere. Um, they could know the shock was coming, but there was nowhere they could jump to avoid it. Okay. And... Then later, they put them in a situation where they could jump to the other side to avoid the shock. And what they found is that these animals who had first basically been put in an area where they couldn't avoid the shock never would jump away from it when given the opportunity. So they learned to be helpless in getting themselves out of that shock situation. So they would just sit there and take the shock because they felt that nothing their actions did changed the environment for them. And if you think of that in terms of like domestic violence, etc., it has a lot of implication in terms of why people stay or leave. Um, if you feel like no matter what you do, the end situation is going to be the same, your actions are going to be different. And that's something that's learned, okay? Um, and that's what Siegelman found with learned helplessness, okay? Um, be sure to kind of read over that in the book. All right, number 70, um, it talks about the leading causes of death in 2013. Um, there's some big ones like heart disease, so be sure and look those up and kind of be able to recognize them. Number 71 has to do with STDs and be able to like kind of recognize who might be the most likely to catch an STD in terms of different groups, okay? Males, females, etc. Number 72, meditation. We had a whole lecture on this and basically know the benefits of meditation and what those do for you. Okay. Number 73, um talks about suicide basically being the second leading cause of death for 15 to 34 year olds. Um, 
it changes depending upon the age group, but again, it's kind of a large contributor still in that age group. Um, it's starting to be a bigger contributor in younger age groups, which is rather concerning. Number 74, learning theorists and abnormal behavior. Basically, you need to know that learning theorists think that abnormal behavior and normal behavior are both learned in the same way, okay? Um, so you learn abnormal things the same way you might learn normal things, so you're going to use the same learning processes to explain one or the other, okay? Um, number 75, know what the DSM stands for. Of course, the DSM, you know, has all of our um, mental disorders in it and a list of all of the symptoms so you can diagnose someone. Um, it's made by the American Psychiatric Association and we're on the sixth edition currently. Although the exam is going to reference the DSM-5 as the book does, Okay. Number 76, know about genetics and schizophrenia. Um, schizophrenia, of course, has a lot of different types. But um, if you have someone in your family that has schizophrenia, you are much more likely to develop the disorder because it's very genetically linked. Number 77, um, borderline personality disorder, we didn't talk a whole lot about. But they found that basically low levels of serotonin seem to be associated with it. So you need to know that. Um, number 78, know that the DSM is something that's always changing. Even though we consider abnormal behavior to be like, say, a violation of social or cultural norms, those change. So over time, as social and cultural norms change, so do some of our definitions of what's a disorder and what isn't. Um, for example, homosexuality used to be considered a disorder and no longer is, okay? So the DSM in its different iterations is going to change as those social and cultural norms change for normal and abnormal behavior, okay? Um, number 79, um, know kind of what anorexia is and the different things that go with that. 80 is going to be psychoanalytic perspective. Um, be sure and understand that. Number 81, cognitive components of anxiety. So basically, what are the symptoms that involve cognition? So being really watchful or worried is going to be one of those. Um, 82, when do we really consider something abnormal? Um, in psychology, you can go through the DSM and look and you'll see that you have a lot of symptoms of a lot of the disorders, but it doesn't become problematic until it actually is interfering with your daily life and ability to function. So that is kind of the key to anything becoming a disorder or being labeled a disorder. You can have all of the symptoms of something and it not be interfering with your life, okay? Number 83, panic disorder, is basically going to fall under what category in the DSM? Number 84 um, talks about post-traumatic stress disorder and the types of events that are going to cause post-traumatic stress disorder. We see a lot of those following like wars and catastrophes. Um, 
So that would be one example. Be sure you can recognize several. Number 85 talks about dissociative identity disorder. And um, I think number 87 does actually as well. And that used to be called multiple personality disorder. And it's going to be defined as people or someone who has more than one distinct personality. Okay. Number 86 talks about dissociative amnesia, which is a little bit different. Um, it's also similar to something called a dissociative fugue, which is where you kind of forget who you are and will sometimes wander very far away from home. Um, and you can't figure out who you are or where you are or what you're doing there. Um, a lot of times these people end up in the hospital and then they have to figure out who they are, where they came from and what's going on. It's usually a reaction to stress. It's a type of amnesia. Okay. Number 88 talks about depression and dysthymia. These are going to be similar. They both have symptoms of, you know, major depressive disorder, but major depression is something that lasts at least two weeks. Dysthymia is going to be something with like less symptoms that lasts anywhere between two years or more. It's going to be a longer time with kind of lower threshold symptoms. Okay. Number 89 is about schizophrenia and basically the differential between delusions and hallucinations, okay? The delusions have to do with your thought processes and hallucinations have to do with what you see, hear, and feel and touch. Number 90, know the difference between like a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Also, uh, number 91, a psychoanalyst is what type of therapist. Um... Number 92 is basically the process of transference, which is a psychoanalytic thing. Um, be sure to kind of understand how that works. Number 93 is Carl Rogers. He basically developed your client-centered therapy. And 94 kind of moves on to humanistic therapy. And what's the main goal in humanistic therapy? You're, you're wanting to create a certain type of environment. What is that environment? Okay. Um, number 95, um, basically understand what cognitive behavioral therapy is. Okay. Has to do with basically understanding the cognition, which of course is going to change the behavior. Number 96, understand what the goals of couples therapy is or family therapy. All right. Um, we talked about that in class a little bit. Number 97 has to do with online psychological services or basically telemedicine, okay? Um, does that work as well as in-person therapy or not, okay? Number 98 has to do with anti-anxiety medications and how those work and what they do, some of the problems with them, which are, of course, addiction. Um, number 99 has to do with a an anti-anxiety medication that's a little different than most of them. Most of them are benzodiazepines and they're addictive. There's one called Buspar, which is kind of different in terms of its structure and it's not as addictive, but it has a lower risk and since it also treat anxiety. And then number 100 I have here somewhere is basically knowing what the most frequently prescribed antidepressants are, which are going to be SSRIs. So make sure you kind of know what that stands for and 
you should basically be good for the test. If you have any questions, feel free to email me or message me anytime and I will get back to you as soon as possible. Um, I hope this is helpful and again, have a good night and happy studying.